Hello and welcome. You're listening to People Not War, a podcast brought to you by Campaign Against Arms Trade. My name is Sienna and I'll be your host. Join me as I catch up with campaigners, activists, community organisers and all-round inspirational people working to end the international arms trade and other intersecting issues. Throughout the series, we'll be drawing links between the arms trade and issues as broad as border controls and policing, colonialism, the crisis in Yemen, the militarisation of education, climate justice, to name just a few, with the hope of showing that all these struggles are interconnected. So today I am joined by Sirona Bedwan. Welcome, Sirona. Thank you for having me. Hey, how's it going? Oh, living the dream, you know, almost <laughs> near towards the end of the year. How are you? Okay, thank you. I'm actually going to, we're going to get into how you're feeling in just a moment because I've been opening yeah. um, with, with really just, you know, having real life conversations about how people feel considering we've we've lived through quite a year um, but before mm. we, we dive in properly I'm going to give you your your bio so Sirona is a poet artist activist and educational outreach worker exploring the intersections of visual cultures Palestinian futurisms and queer phenomenologies she's based in London and is the outreach officer at Makan a Palestinian organization working to help reshape the mainstream discussion around Palestine Israel towards one rooted in rights and equality so Obviously, you've said, you know, you're, you're doing okay, but like, yeah, how have you kind of uh, gotten through 2020? Like, how's it been? <laughs> it's been quite the year, so <laughs> have you navigated it's, it? You can see my face. I'm like, how do I answer that? Um, I guess, yeah, it's, you know, alhamdulillah, things I cannot complain. Um, everyone I know is healthy and alive, which is a lot more than what a lot of other people can say. Um and, you know, the organization I work for, we've, I think we've kind of adapted quite brilliantly to uh, the new kind of health political landscape. Um, but it has been quite a heart-wrenching year. Um, and I would say it's been a year that has really demonstrated the failings of the current systems that we're living in. And I think shown us the necessity and importance of collective responsibility. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's kind of the overwhelming feeling I've gotten. Yeah, that's really powerful to think about that at all times, this collective responsibility and actually how the community in many ways have stepped in to do what really the <laughs> we, we pay our governments to do, shall we say. Um, but that, that's a whole other podcast and a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, you know, these things are not completely separate from what we're going to be talking about anyway. So obviously, um, you know, I've mentioned that you work at McCann. So let's talk a little bit um, for those who don't know, have never heard of the organisation. Um, what do you do at McCann and actually why does the organisation exist? What's your mission? Yeah, thank you for asking. So I'm the outreach officer at McCann. Um, we're a Palestinian-led educational organization based here in the UK that works to strengthen voices for Palestinian rights. Um, we were founded, just a bit of background information, in 2015 by two Palestinians in diaspora, Tamara bin Halim and Tariq Baqoni, in the aftermath of the Israeli military assault of the illegally blockaded and besieged Gaza Strip in summer of 2014. And seeing that the discourse on Palestine and Palestinian rights was being misrepresented by mainstream media and publications. So out of this, McCann, which means place in Arabic. I was going to ask would, you, what does it mean? I'm glad you yeah, said exactly. it. Means. It that. means place in Arabic. And um, it was created um, to serve as an educational resource on the Palestinian rights struggle. Um, and what we essentially do is we work to nurture and amplify the voices of people working towards freedom and justice and equality on the grassroots advocacy and policy levels through education. Our aim is to help reshape the mainstream discussion on Palestine, Israel, towards one rooted in rights and equality. Um, the main way we do this is through educational workshops and programs. And I think just lastly, it's really important to say that there are 
a copious amount of organizations who are doing critical work on campaigning, focusing on knowledge production um, around Palestine and the Palestinian struggle um, and working on high policy levels as well. Um, we, we see our role as collaborating with these countless organizations in this ecosystem um, who share our values of anti-discrimination um, and openly call for freedom, justice and equality. And we see education um, as a tool and we work to streamline and synthesize pre-existing knowledge and information on Palestine. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. And I am a, a fan of the work that you folks do, especially because I'm always really struck by the, the, the caliber of your events and the accessibility of them. Um, and I love that you've started talking about this ecosystem. I talk about it a lot too, this ecosystem of, um, of struggle, of, of people struggling against X, against Y, against Z, and kind of the fact that it's all interconnected. Um, and everybody has a role to play, basically. And as you say, there's a lot of organizations that might be doing similar work, or might be having emphasis on a particular aspect of the work, whatever, and it's all needed. So that's a really useful kind of um, landscape you've given us. And, you know, speaking of kind of the way that the organization puts together um, resources and events and, and does outreach work to make quite a complex issue a little bit more accessible. Um, I thought it'd be useful, actually, I've been having this kind of, I've asked, I've made this request to all our guests in some way, shape or form. We are talking about quite complicated issues and um, whether it is directly the arms trade or it's issues that intersect with it. Um, and I think I always wanna come to these discussions as if kind of whoever might be listening, maybe they've, they don't know very much about it or they've just stumbled across this podcast and, and they're kind of learning about all this stuff for the first time. So is there a way that you could maybe walk us through some, some mm. basics of what is clearly a humongous topic um, and quite um, controversial and quite complicated. Um, are you able to just give us a few kind of, um, I suppose, facts um, and just walk us through the basics of the situation just so folks who are listening understand what is happening in Palestine at the moment, Palestine, Israel? Yeah, I'll be happy to. So I think definitely there is, it's a great question and a big one at that. It's huge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> no, so it's, it's, it's great. I'm glad you're asking. Um, I won't spend too much time on necessarily yeah. providing an overview, but I think it's important to note a few things. And maybe um, some misconceptions, because there's probably quite a lot of misconceptions that people have if they know anything. Yeah, I think I'll indirectly address misconceptions. So I think the first part historically um, is that the Palestinian rights struggle was born out of an anti-colonial struggle um, to preserve the land Palestinians are indigenous to in the early 1900s. And that rights struggle exists to this day. Um, I think there are many good resources to look at um, to kind of flesh out um, the many different events um, and declarations which have been like signed since the early 1900s to I think look at the international complicity and I think ultimately responsibility to Palestinians. Um, one is Palestine Journeys, um, a joint digital project by the Palestine Museum, the Journal of Palestine Studies in Visualizing Palestine that provides a linear historical narrativization to Palestine through primary resources, bios, and photographs. It's an excellent resource. I use it all the time. Um, second is, McCann, we've actually produced a historical overview on our website, mccann.org.uk, um, that shows the emergence and the evolution of the Palestinian rights struggle. Um, I think just starting at that point, that departure point is, is is a good kind of route to take note at. Um, what I would like to point out, since both you and I are here in the UK, yeah. is to kind of note to listeners that <clears throat> there was a, a, a huge aspect, and I think catalyst, to the colonial takeover in the early 1900s was actually facilitated by the British Foreign Secretary, uh, Arthur Balfour, in 1917 through his orchestrated Balfour Declaration. Um, and what this did is it promised a Jewish uh, home in Palestine. Uh, the declaration in of itself, which is public, can be publicly accessed, I would just like to point out a few problematic things in that declaration because it very much 
carries over that language to this day, which is it does not mention Palestinians. It does not um, ensure uh, Palestinian political sovereignty or political rights. Rather, it outlines civil and religious uh, rights. So just picking up on those themes, you can see how those ideas are recycled throughout the last century. And ultimately that manifestation, uh, manifestation's latest uh, product is Trump's uh, deal of the century. Um, and that's not something I have time to get into right now, but I think it's important I hope that listeners understand that this has been a reoccurring uh, experience for Palestinians, ultimately, which is being spoken for, as opposed to having a seat at the table. Um, and I think that kind of brings me into the contemporary part, a uh, few notes that I'd like for listeners to kind of uh, take note of, which is that how has the, how has experiences of Palestinians uh, manifested to this day? Where are Palestinians now? And what do we experience? Um, and I think it's important to note because there are a lot of different moving parts. Um, there are more Palestinians outside of Palestine than who reside in it because of the dispersal, because of expulsions that you know began in the early 1900s, continue to this day. What I think is is important to note is that there are essentially four different kinds of domains of control. Um, and it's important to note that the Israeli state impacts a Palestinian no matter where they are in the world um, on some level. I think just to note in Israel itself or what many call 48 colloquially that instead refers to Israel as um, you know, the borders of 1948 that were taken over in uh, around historic Palestine. Um, there are over 60 laws directly or indirectly discriminating against Palestinian citizens and non-Jewish citizens of Israel. Um, this manifests in, in multiple ways, um, but it essentially determines the ability for a Palestinian citizen to live, where to work, and their ability to even have their home demolished or not. There, it really takes on an insidious but um, catastrophic effect upon a Palestinian citizens um, of Israel's life. Um, so then there's an, is an illegal military occupation of the West Bank where there are two sets of laws that are very starkly applied to two populations military law for Palestinians and civilian law for illegal Israeli settlers. Um, and so what this means, <clears throat> excuse me, and very kind of um, a, a blunt example is an Israeli settler and a Palestinian can commit uh, an, a, the same offense per se. Um, and one will be can is, is subjected to administrative detention, um, imprisonment, um, and all sorts of kind of um, horrendous uh, uh, actions um, that you know Israel, at, under international law, as an occupying power, has responsibilities that it must follow. Does it? Of course not. Um, whereas the counterpart, the settler will experience, if ever rarely, a hand slapping by Israeli military. So in a way, um, you can see that is kind of the starkest example of two sets of laws being imposed upon two different sets of two different sets of people, quote unquote. Um, then to move forward, there is an illegal siege and blockade that has been imposed on the Gaza Strip um, since the mid 2000s. Um, enforced by the Israeli uh, state, as well as with some collaboration by the Egyptian state as well. What this means in many, in many respects is that Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip are subjected to policies of what the state, Israeli state calls de-development. So this policy of going into the Strip every few years um, with military assaults, 
So that way there's no kind of continuous development um, for Palestinians living there, um, subjecting Palestinians to what um, a few Israeli officials have called a diet. So counting the number of calories, Palestinians um, are able to eat. So the, num the amount of food that is um, in entering Gaza, um, as well as keeping registrar of every Palestinian born in the Strip. So even though there are no essentially boots on the ground by the Israeli military in the Gaza Strip, Israel con continues to control land, sea, and airspace across historic Palestine and the occupied territories. Um, and then there are uh, people, and I, I forgot to mention actually, part of the uh, illegal military occupation is that of East Jerusalem, where Palestinians don't have, um, you know, don't have Israeli citizenship, but rather residency cards. Um, and oftentimes they are subjected to <clears throat> random military checks at their homes um, to, to basically see if that Palestinian is living there at their home in, in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem for Palestinians must be proven that Jerusalem is their uh, center of life because Israel wants to maintain a certain demographic. And then moving on to the illegal occupation, which exists in East Jerusalem, where Palestinians have residency status. What this means is that um, they live an incredibly precarious um, life in East Jerusalem, where they are consistently subjected to random military checks um, by the Israeli military um, to, to basically see if that person is actually living in Jerusalem because they must prove that their center of life is Jerusalem. So to see if the garbage cans are full, if there's dust in the home, things like this, um, as well as if a Palestinian who has East Jerusalem residency um, happens to go study abroad, for example, in the UK, they have to come back to Jerusalem every number of months or so to basically not have their residency revoked. So it's an incredibly precarious kind of way of attempting to live your life. Um, lastly, there are the Palestinians who live in exile, diaspora, who are refugees, um, many living in Lebanon or surrounding Arab countries, um, where surrounding host Arab states um, also have well have um, many different sets of laws, which directly or indirectly discriminate against Palestinians as well, not allowing them to be fully absorbed into that state, um, as well as Palestinians um, who are in diaspora are often, or actually every, basically everyone that's not actually residing there on the ground, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, is then denied the right to return, which is enshrined in international law, um, which allows Palestinians or any refugee for that matter, it's not just applicable to Palestinians, it's any nationality um, for any refugee, um, depending on their home country, that they are allowed to go back to that place and settle there. Um, and that is consistently being denied by the Israeli state. Um, and so these are just, again, there are many different moving parts but I think what I would like for listeners to take away from this is that no matter where a Palestinian is in the world, they are being impacted by the Israeli state based on their nationality, based on their ethnicity. Um, and I think that these many different moving parts, there are to essentially say that depending on where you are as a Palestinian, you experience different sets of laws. So it's, as you said earlier, Sienna, it's uh, there can be very many different complexities, but also it can be a very clear cut issue. And I think what that is, is that at the end of the day, Palestinians have been struggling to stay on their land. And I think it's important to note that that emerges in many different kinds of um, 
frameworks or systems of laws that try to prevent them, are preventing them, and attempting to erase Palestinian, not only uh, physical presence on the land, but also culture, culture and identity. And those frameworks um, are not new. We have seen them continuously throughout history. And those that is illegal military occupation, that is settler colonialism, and that is apartheid. And that is not something that only Palestinians have experienced, that has been experienced and continues to be experienced, unfortunately, by many people around the world. so much for such a thorough um you actually did end up giving quite a thorough overview um you were kind of like I can't do an overview but but actually you did and it's you know of course you know there are you know people like myself you know we try our best to kind of like get our heads around it whatever and even just hearing you speak I'm still here just like my goodness me my goodness me you know um and you said so many things that I'm like holding I'm kind of like what do I want to unpick a little bit next and I think I'm struck by I'm struck by maybe two things in in what was so many things to be struck by, but the example you gave, the kind of very, as you say, blunt example of kind of, you know, um, an Israeli settler, Palestinian, same area, completely different rules apply for the same thing, right? And that obviously echoes so much of kind of the, even just this part of the world, and we're thinking about, um, just thinking about, for example, you know, being a black person, a black citizen, pretty much anywhere in in a in a majority white country, for example, right, and doing the same thing as somebody else, and the consequences that you are killed by by the police. I think you know this is obviously very like topical at the moment. Um, and I think I want to come back to you were talking a lot about you know use the word apartheid again. We kind of we know that is a system that many different people have experienced, including, for example, you know, South Africans. And so I think I want to come back to these uh, connections between struggles, because um, I mentioned a few times in this podcast, you know, uh, Angela Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Have you ever read that book, by the way? I've read parts of it, it's but so I had great. the pleasure of seeing her at the South Bank Centre in March 2018. I was there as well. Everybody was there. I, <laughs> I, I got to ask her, what, like, the first question, which opened oh the floor, gosh. which... I feel the pride over but you know we'll come to that in a second because actually she's someone who speaks very clearly and very mm. often about the fact that there are so many connections between the Palestinian struggle and the struggle for black lives quite directly and mm. so you know I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that but just kind of thinking about the diaspora for a moment because you, you talked a lot about the diaspora and I actually didn't necessarily know that in many ways wherever you are as a Palestinian you're still behold beholden to a lot of the kind of laws that might affect you know Palestinians at home as well or in or, or whatever that kind of same um f same basically the core of it is the same the discrimination but it might take like slightly different forms depending where you are and I suppose I just want to think a bit more about the role of the diaspora though um mm. in our struggles and you know in the Palestinian struggle but you can speak more widely I think it can be very tricky um this has come up a few times in, in our conversation. It can be tricky when, you, when you're so far away from home to feel mm. like you can be effective. And then there's this weird, I don't know if you've ever felt it, but there's this weird conundrum about taking up space. So you're, of course, you're Palestinian. That's your identity. You're, you're X, you're Y. This is your identity, Yemeni. That's your identity. But you're now not on the ground. And so you have to balance kind of um, your diasporic voice with really you might be missing some of the realities of on the ground stuff, unless you have obviously family who are there and can give you the, the kind of ins and outs. But I suppose just, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on kind of the role of the diaspora and the balance between like taking up space and also using your voice though, to bring a direct kind of, um, I suppose, magnifying glass to what's happening to everybody at home. Does mm. that make sense? That makes sense. That's mm. a great question. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a, constant struggle <laughs> to, to yeah. borrow <laughs> Angela's title um I think you know there's multiple layers to this um I think it's one to I think constantly reassure ourselves like you know we may be in diaspora but we're still Palestinian um and that is not something to shy away from um I think it's definitely understanding those power dynamics. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, I have family still on the ground. And, you know, each time I go back, there is that gnawing sense of I have the choice to leave. 
and for them it's not that easy um so it's definitely a very visceral um i would say i think constant juggling mm. and and off and you know i think you know many of the emotions that emerge from that is shame guilt um i'd say almost like a self-loathing but at the end of the day i think often to um what is useful for us and how do we take that because ultimately that that is almost like misdirected um that should be targeted and used i would say towards you know our frustrations at this injustice that we face at these you know these multiple forms of oppression that should be you know utilized productively in struggling for freedom and and you know rerouting those very valid emotions and kind of moments of just saying it's it's too much and saying but we have no choice and i think i'd like to kind of turn here cuz i think the second part of your question around how do i you know how do i kind of find a way of engaging mm. with palestinianness um and almost using where i am as a magnifying glass and i think that is why i think i turn towards writing so i think i'm going to like i'm taking i'm now speaking as myself not yeah. as the outreach officer as mcan um and to say that you know this is where i find i guess not not a solace but rather a um a space um in 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 creating um so i'd say creativity and art have a strong relationship with politics um art produces understandings and conversations of the political landscapes and vice versa um and i would argue that politics and art are inherently intertwined um and the reason that i think i i turn towards the space and and you know using either my body or writing or things like that to to work through um not only these emotions but also of grappling with what we would like for the world to look like for us and for those who come after us um cuz you're right i'm not there and that doesn't mean though that we can't make this happen that you can't bring palestinianness to where you are you can't bring that practice absolutely to here um because ultimately um you know what palestinians are experiencing on the ground is also being experienced in other spaces and also at different times so that means that our practices how we find solace in those moments of just absolute darkness need to extend in very robust and rich ways that encompass our whole lives um so the main forms that i i work with or i continued or i continue to work with is is writing and a few attempts at performance art um and i think there's an example i'd like to provide of a time when i attempt to to show or use uh this vehicle of cultural production as a magnifying glass um and it's when i was still at goldsmiths in 2018 um and there i had um a few of my peers antonio and aget uh assist me on creating a photo essay and the the departure point for this was um there is a amazing uh palestinian organization called um visualizing palestine that i mentioned a bit earlier they create infographics they have one that um looks at the birth of palestinian children at illegal israeli military checkpoints um and they have a link to un reports that document these cases um so there are women there are palestinian women who've been forced to give birth at illegal israeli military checkpoints i chose five cases presented by these un reports um and 
using Google Maps because that is one of the only ways to access uh, a vision of the space. Um, I used Google Maps to find the villages that these women lived in and were trying to leave to access hospital care in order to give birth. Um, the images provided by Google um, varied. Um, I think it's important to note that Google Maps does not uh, democratically uh, document space. Um, and there's many different laws that actually prevent that prevent Google or Google's complicit in that discriminates against what is shown to people who are not on the ground, wherever you are. And um, a very good person who works on this is Zaina Ara. Um, she works with Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, who actually uh, does amazing writings and research around this topic. Um, but um, I won't, I won't be, I won't lose myself in that. That's a whole different <laughs> podcast. Um, but what's important to know is that the, the checkpoints weren't documented via Google Maps. Um, the way in which mm. that they were described on the at, in the UN reports was it, it was something as kind of banal as um, a dirt a dirt mound blocking the only entry and exit to the village. Um, that was then being patrolled by um, illegal Israeli military in the West Bank, um, or it was a makeshift checkpoint, but again, um, made with like cement blocks, but again, being patrolled by Israeli military. And the soldiers would stop them and would not let them go for a whole host of trivial reasons, but essentially the reasons were to prevent Palestinian women from being able to safely give birth. And you see in these moments how colonial overtakings look at the body and the womb as a place of, of threat. Um, the womb, the ability to give birth becomes weaponized. Um, and so ultimately these women had to give birth at the checkpoints in some instances the, the child and the, and the mother was fine. Other instances, both, both passed um, in, in a way. Um, the images of where these women gave birth, I had to kind of guesstimate based on the descriptions of the UN reports. And then those images were projected onto my womb and my peer Antonio drew the projection onto my womb and again photographed the drawings. Um, and kind of what I realized afterwards is what I was grappling with was the kind of the kind of proximity that that could have been to me, my mother, um, any one of my family members who are still there, any one of my friends. Um, and I think as well to, to really understand how the occupation and the many other different systems that are occurring on the ground really are terrified of that demographic threat. And I think a really good way to understand Israeli policy towards Palestinians is um, the Israeli state wants the maximum amount of land with the minimum number of Palestinians on it. And from there, you can see uh, the intention behind these different actions. Um, so I think what this, what this means to me in terms of the space that cultural production provides mm. is how we come to understand ourselves, um, how we move throughout the world and the ways we are able to move throughout the world because that's not always in our control, is it? I find writing or more generally cultural production can be a way of grappling with yourself and the world around you. And I think it is also a critical avenue to exercise your imagination by rethinking and creating something that shows the kind of world you want to live in. I think it can be a form of future making as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, I'll, but I'll end there. Um, but, I, mm. oh, but I did want to say um, as well that um, I've many 
different, amazing, brilliant uh, Palestinian, uh, you know, cultural makers as well. Yeah. Who, do you want to name who, some of them maybe so folks can? I'd love to. Please do. Um, so there's <clears throat> Hashem Abu Shama, who is studying at Oxford, I believe, who uh, focuses on Palestinian cultural production as well. Um, Dana Abdullah, who's, um, who specializes in design. Um, uh, there's Christina Hasboun, who works on Palestinian uh, musical production and actually has her own podcast as well. Um, and then there's Dr. Laura Sheehy and Stephen and Dr. Stephen Sheehy, who um, are based in on Turtle Island, but they focus on applying psychoanalysis to Palestinians on the ground. So it's understanding the impacts of, of this way of experiencing the world through occupation and settler colonialism um, and what that does to the psyche. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those are very, very critical ways of engaging with Palestinianness as well. It's not just through a very mainstream political platform of looking at UN resolutions. It's engaging with Palestinianness as we are, which is robust, rich, um, three-dimensional. We are people who live lives, who want to live our lives. And that's, that is ultimately kind of our ways of trying to get there, I suppose. Everything you said there is just so powerful. Um, I'm just thinking, straight away on, on that last point, I suppose when you are a people who are defined by others for primarily struggle, it means that, yeah, a, a huge amount of your humanity is erased because people forget that there is joy as well in our cultures, right? There is richness in our cultures and we cannot just be defined by our struggle. The, the struggle is, is clearly vital and central um, because it's live and it affects every part of our lives. But this is when I think about the role of art and artists in like archiving and documenting. And, you know, there are people who need to focus on what I call firefighting, right? Dealing with exactly. the times. But then that also means often those same people don't actually have the time to dream of what the future could look like. They sometimes do, but often they don't. And this is when we come back to the ecosystem thing, that we need everybody. We need the people who have to handle business now <laughs> and, and firefight the fires we are literally dealing with. But we need those who have the space and the imagination to also think about what are we working towards though? What does this exactly. new world look like? Because I think a lot of the time as activists and campaigners and... Mm -hmm. And the like, we know what we're against and we know what our struggles are, but it can be a bit more difficult to kind of really work out and fine tune what we're for and what we're actually building towards, especially if you're doing this longer term, you know, or it's all, it's all you've ever known, the kind of, um, yeah, the way things are. It can be very difficult to know, to think about what is a new status quo. I just know I don't like this status quo. And I think, you know, the, the work that you're doing as an artist is, is, is extremely powerful. And I think one thing I was really interested in, actually, um, in your work is this idea of Palestinian futurisms. And you spoke a little bit, you touched a little bit on, on future. And, you know, um, there's a praxis, a, a whole body of work around like Afrofuturism. And so I'm very interested in that. And I think there must be crossover. So could you just talk to us a little bit about what, what that kind of concept is and how you've kind of engaged with Palestinian futurisms? I'd be really interested to know. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, there's, I guess, with with regards to Palestinian futurisms, I think um, I could be completely wrong. Um, but from what I know, it's it's still a process. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say the. I guess Palestinian futurisms is also not such a new thing because. Palestinians have not been dreaming and writing about what it would be to live in a different world Absolutely. since the early 1900s. So I stand corrected um, <laughs> humbly. <laughs> um, um, but I'd say contemporary efforts. Um, there's an excellent um, anthology uh, called Palestine 100, which looks at, um, which asked Palestinians, um, I think both on the ground in, in exile, what they imagine Palestine to look like 100 years after the Nakba, or 
that means catastrophe in Arabic, and that refers to the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Um, so our catastrophe. Um, and it's an anthology that shows you uh, many different perspectives. And I think infuses it with this kind of sci-fi dystopian creativity around um, what things could look like on the ground. It's not, it's not a um, happy-go-lucky kind of text, which actually I was quite grateful for. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it was, it was simultaneously actually really fun reading it because it was just so refreshing. It was writing by us, for us. And that's something I really cherish. Um, I'd say, and it's important to note as well that Palestine 100 came out of um, uh, an, the book of anthology, an anthology titled Iraq 100, wow. which looked at Iraq 100 years, I believe, after um, the US invasion, not that that's ended, um, in the early 2000s. And it's, it's an excellent uh, book as well. So highly recommend to read it. Um, so that, that is something Palestinians have always been engaging in many different ways with what Palestine can look like beyond what we're experiencing now. Um, I think the way in which I engage with it um, is through, I think, looking at how we can redefine um, and practice the kind of world making that we want where we are now. Um, I think, you know, you said something earlier that said like, that, um, you know, you're not there, what can you do? And I think that's such a, that hits the nail on the head because in many ways, that's the thing that many people are asking themselves, I'm not there, what can I do? Mm -hmm. and, <clears throat> and for me, it was, well, how do I reorient my relationship to Palestine and Palestinianness? In many ways, it's asking, where can Palestinianness be found? Where, where can we be? And, and I think, where can return happen? Because in many ways, the root, one of the main roots of the of our demands is the right to return. And it's, it's, it's enshrined in international law. It should be something that should not even be demanded because it should be there. Um, and, and it got me thinking about, well, where can return happen? And what would it look like? Because the point is, is that the right of return is a choice as a Palestinian or any refugee, if you've been displaced from your home, where you should have that choice to go back. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and I suppose with, with kind of my work and, and the piece that's gonna be published with Kohol, a body of, of, of um, a journal of body and gender research based in Lebanon, um, and part as part of their queer feminisms issue, it looks at applying um, a kind of return that emerges out of our relationalities with each other. Um, so it's what I suggest in it is that state building um, is not the end all be all. It's about the politics that you practice, because at the end of the day, um, and again, speaking for myself, not as the outreach officer at McCann, um, <laughs> I say that what is the point in having a Palestinian flag rooted in the ground if still neoliberalism will be applied to that space? If, you know, on Turtle Island, you're, you know, you accumulate debt and then you go to Palestine and still that same system of debt is accumulated. Still, you know, fighting against anti-blackness on Turtle Island only to go to Palestine and still have that there. Then it's like, well, what is the return then? That's not return. 
but is simply the same status quo. So I think as well, it's an interrogation of nationality, not to dismiss the dire need, I think, of the ways in which that nationalism has been institutionalized to the point that in a way it is a vehicle for becoming, I think for having political rights formalized. But I think it's about, again, where do we want to go? Is that where we want to end? Um, and so I think it's about I, um, really asking ourselves, well, what can we do here in London? You know, what? And so for me, it's about looking at what can we do with what we have? And, and I think really then taking a look at, um, I think inherently then, the non-choice of solidarity, because ultimately that if you understand that no matter where you are, you could still potentially be subjected to that very same thing. It may manifest in a different way, but ultimately that's what it is. Um, you know, I, I don't know who said this, but a friend said this to me yesterday and was quoting someone else, but they couldn't remember who said it. And they said, our oppressors are united mm -hmm. in our oppression. Therefore, we must be united in our struggles for liberations. Um, and I think when they said that to me, I was like, that's it. Like, and that's something Angela said in the South Bank talk, yeah. which is, um, you know, when I think she was asked by the host, it's, well, what, how do you keep struggling without a guarantee? And I'll never forget it. She said, well, it's not a choice. We must keep doing it because what other, what, what else can we do? This comes without guarantee, but the point is, is that we keep doing it and it's not always fun. It can be heart-wrenching. There can be weeks or months even where you, you just have to turn off um, and just lay low. And other times you have the energy to, to do some other things. But I think it really, really, um, for me, it how, Palestinian futurisms and, and future making is also understanding that it's not just Palestinian futurisms in many ways. It's, it's our collective futurisms. Um, and because Palestine is not exceptional, it is situated amongst a wide range of a wider other context struggles. with yeah. things that underpin it. I was just, when you, as soon as you said that quote, and even before you said that, I was just thinking about something that's, that's always said in the context, the kind of um, in Afrofuturism, you know, there are black people in the future, there are Palestinians mm -hmm. in the future, and like that's the bottom line. And so when we do this work, we have to be thinking about the fact that like surviving is a must, um, mm -hmm. so that we're, we're in the future, like it's a must. And I think something that's come up again in, in a lot of the conversations are the fact that our struggles, again, may manifest differently, um, but there are things that underpin them that are pretty much the same. Neoliberalism has come up again, of course, you know, capitalism, and of course, colonialism, of racism, course. Um, course. often anti-blackness, and just thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, this idea of Western powers and Western intervention with a capital W. We mm -hmm. cannot um, under, you know, we can't, we can't underplay that. It's, it's foundational, the West, with a capital W has has reached has um reached havoc across the globe across the globe basically mm -hmm. and and when people speak of all oh, these things that are in the past we are we are rarely ever living um free from the clutches exactly. of the consequences of the past you know exactly. we're very much in many ways in kind of the afterlife of things but the afterlife is still very much living and the consequences are still living so so when when people kind of want to turn away or not engage, especially those who have the privilege of doing so. Um, often you hear it's because, well, you know, we need to move on. How can you move on when you're, you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of years or thousands of years in some cases, the consequences of those things that really haven't changed. They've just mm. changed shape. Mm -hmm. um, and again, so let's, you know, Angela comes up time and time again, because <laughs> she speaks again, as I said earlier, so clearly about the connections. And for me, when I read Freedom is a Constant Struggle, I realized that for many years, I'd done a really good job of like, and it's really important to do this work, but thinking about the intersectionality of self, you have to understand that, that you don't ever just come as a woman or just a Palestinian or this, that, and the third. You're, you're all these things. This is the, you know, um, the theory of intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw mm. gave us the language for, for example, and others kind of gave similar 
language um and then I started to think about okay the intersectionality of struggle and that's mm-hmm. when I as I like to say that's when you level up your thinking in my opinion because you're kind of like okay so this then means we actually we must be internationalist we mm-hmm. can't just be it's it's actually so counterproductive to only focus um and just look inwards you have to mm-hmm. be internationalist and of course it can seem overwhelming because it's kind of like when you start to connect the dots you're like ah this is a massive web how are we going to make any inroads on like any part of it and I I fully want to make space for the fact that it's okay to feel that, to feel overwhelmed because it's big. And when we think about things like the arms trade, it's like, how do we end the arms trade? Oh my God, you know? And I think it's important to have that humongous broad vision, but then you have to start um, make, breaking down the steps and breaking down what winning looks like in the kind of smaller, the shorter, the the, the midterm and, and understanding as well that a lot of these things we're fighting for. And I think that's again, something that Angela, the Panthers and many, many other kind of like um, of, our, of our elders, especially kind of understood that perhaps you will not see the outcome in your lifetime. It'd be great if you did, but you may not live that long to see it. Um, but you do need to make sure you have the stamina to understand mm-hmm. that it's a it's like, a, you know, a baton's being given time and time again over mm-hmm. like a relay race. Right. And we're maybe in this moment where the baton's been handed to us. Um, and so we've got our kind of part to play. And I think, you know, you've actually already started nodding to these things. But considering, you know, we're obviously right now, you know, in 2020 and we've, we, you know, just gone through this summer of another kind of um, emergence of the Black Lives Matter protests um and movement um and i think in lots of different ways that has um reignited awakened people and actually i think made space for connecting the dots to a lot of other struggles i always say i was saying to amina atik who is a yemeni poet i was saying to her that i really can't explain the necessary like the facts and the reasons why but i just noticed at the same time there's a lot of stuff um emerging and like being shared about yemen whilst everything was going on black lives matter and i found it really interesting and i found it actually really powerful people were like engaged ignited they wanted to know more about other struggles and other things going on and there's a a saying like in black communities that when black people rise we we often bring everybody with us and I think that can translate to anybody in whatever kind of pyramid of struggle if you you raise those at the bottom by default of course everybody else rises and so in your I just guess from your perspective I'm sorry understanding that again as we said it's important to honor the differences but it's really useful to think about the similarities and parallels and Mm -hmm. and areas of like you know, real life solidarity. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, I suppose, people making those important connections between things like Black Lives Matter, issues like Palestine, um, issues like Yemen, um, even climate justice, but these, making these connections and making sure that you have a holistic understanding of, of struggle and the commonalities of the, I suppose, the, the real things that underpin all of these, these problems. Why is it important to not think of issues in silo? Is what I'm asking, I, I suppose. I think it's, I think it's absolutely critical to make those not only connections, but to make those relationships meaningfully. That's it, yeah. Um, because <clears throat> um, I know this is quoted all the time, but it's it's for a reason. <laughs> Audre Lorde said, we don't live single issue lives. Exactly. Which is why our struggles and our imagining for liberations must not be single issued. I mean, it encapsulates perfectly, I think, to this day, the how how much we should be constantly reviewing, expanding, checking. There, this is a process, this is not static. And if it's, it becomes static, that's time to kind of rearrange. Um, I think to make those connections and relationships only make us stronger. Um, I think, and in many ways it does the, you know, your particular kind of whatever, like a listener, maybe, you know, any listener that may be kind of listening in on this, whatever kind of captures you and maybe your context from where you come from, um, it does it a disservice, I think, by only looking at it as this is my, this is my sole uh, purpose. And, and then kind of almost unintentionally closing opportunities of collaboration off. Um, I think ultimately, one, again, this is coming out of a practice of solidarity. It is to understand and to learn what has been done to us. Um, But more importantly, how our ancestors have resisted how we have come to be today. We don't know everything. We have yet to know not only historically 
but still the his the past is actually still in the present as you've said Siana but as well as the the kind of different levels of future making we could really be engaging with um and I think to understand fully how embedded um oppression has become in our day-to-day lives and and has become globalized as a as the new form of imperialism um and you know I'd say that um you know as I said earlier Palestinians aren't the only ones who are experiencing military occupation yeah such as Kashmiris settler colonialism um isn't the only isn't only a Palestinian experience it is what indigenous communities all across exactly North America are experiencing due to the Canadian and U.S. government's policies Australia as well yeah exactly Australia since the quote-unquote inception of those countries um in apartheid as most known for and this is a South African example and I think looking at even for example the arms trade um you know, this includes ties to the arms industry. And to kind of pinpoint this in a very concrete example, the Israeli government infuses a hyper-militarization that is institutionalized throughout Israeli society in day-to-day life. Um, There's um, required enlistment at the age of 18 to serve for a minimum of two years. Um, The methods used on Palestinians on the ground are exported to countries all around the world. Um, and for example, Elbit Systems, an Israeli company that produces surveillance equipment and weapons and is labels their weapons as battle tested. And the standard is applied after it is the weapon is tested on Palestinians. And simultaneously, this, con- uh, this uh, company is responsible for the construction of the wall that cuts into the green line um, and has been constituted as illegal by the ICC. Elbit Systems has set up integrated fixed towers, also known as IFT systems, which monitor the Tohono O'odham Nations Reservation. Um, This is an indigenous community um, in a reservation located in Arizona, um, bordering on Mexico. Um, And according to an article on The Intercept, um, the kinds of um, day-to-day surveillance of this community manifests in drones that fly overhead, motion sensors that track foot traffic, um, checkpoints that monitor people traveling between the reservation and cities such as Tucson and Phoenix, um, vehicle barriers, surveillance cameras, trucks have appeared also at burial grounds, um, which are sacred to the people on the reservation. That is incredibly distressing, but also points to the ongoing settler colonial manifestation that is continuing on indigenous communities on Turtle Island. Um, It is not over the colonial project. It is only changing, it is evolving. And I think so here you can see a concrete parallel between not only how Israel exports its surveillance and military equipment to other countries, but also the intention behind making those relationships. So also our oppressors are very strategic in seeing an inter, a very horrendous intersectionality, I think in many ways, in their own practices. Therefore our practices, not to say that they should mirror the, our oppressors, but rather <laughs> it's to understand that ours must be layered and, and complex and understand the full totality of how strong we actually are together. Um, I think even just to note that you know, in 2014, in the aftermath of Mike Brown's murder by the Ferguson Police Department, on Twitter there were exchanges between Black Lives Matter activists. I remember. Yeah, it was astonishing. It was and astonishing talking about how to handle tear gas. Exactly. It, like thinking about it is just so. Yeah, it's like very emotional because I remember mm-hmm. that was powerful. Exactly, and and those those moments represent kind of the kernel of what can become. And I think it's important to note that this is also not a new method. We inherit a a rich and robust history of this kind of meaningful uh, community building. In the 1960s and 70s, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, known as the PLO, 
um, was part of the transcontinental movement, forming relationships with South African um, anti-apartheid activists with uh, people in South America, um, in indigenous communities mm. all across South America, as well as communities in indigenous communities in, excuse me, in, on Turtle Island, as well as Black, the Black Panthers. Yep. Those things do not come lightly. We inherit this, we must carry it forward and it is being carried forward in many ways. But I think we definitely have space to grow. I think that is, it's so powerful. And again, drawing the connections is, it's critical to the um, sustainability of our movements as well. Mm -hmm. And all of those examples that you've given are ones that I encourage people to go and like find out more about. Just thinking about one of our guests, Sham, speaks a lot about kind of South America and Latin America and the importance of, um, of thinking about socialism and, and communism and kind of, yeah, just drawing those connections, you know, and, and really when you start to understand, I think there's something comforting as well as I mentioned it being overwhelming mm. to understand everything's connected. It actually can be very comforting to know that, oh, wow, like, okay, we're like not alone here in this country. Exactly. We're not alone in this particular community. This mm. is a blueprint and we're just part of that story. I think exactly. it's incredibly helpful to note that, um, so yeah, I encourage people to keep thinking critically about these things. I think one big reason why we wanted to, to launch People Not War and keep that kind of project going is so that, you know, anybody who is engaging with our work at CAT or otherwise is understanding that the arms trade, you know, talking about racism, talking about colonialism, talking about the militarization of police, talking about militarized borders, talking about Palestine, these are not distractions and they're not kind of side notes and good things to kind of know, but they're not central. Understanding these things will strengthen our understanding of how we win understanding of how we go about engaging with the the arms traders as a as a as a much as a complicated issue and um, that isn't in silo from other struggles so I love what you've said there um and I think as we draw our I can't believe it our conversation's pretty much at an end now Serena and yeah. I want people can you just tell us with your McCann hat back on <laughs> um, thank you <laughs> I love it working with people who are multidisciplinary because we're in kind of you know I'm an artist as well myself and we've been engaging and talking about kind of our lives as artists as well and um you know, the kind of work that we make mm -hmm. is political and, sh and mm -hmm. is deliberately political. And so we don't shy away from that. But with your McCann hat back on, just thinking about, you know, you've already generously told us about the resources people can go and, and learn more about and, and read and use the website. Is there anything mm -hmm. else that maybe um, a, a few kind of immediate things people can do who are listening in terms of if they're like, oh, I really want to start speaking about Palestine. I want to do something that is useful to contribute to the work that's being done. What would you advise people to do? Um, how Absolutely. can they stay in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, again, we work in a very vast and robust ecosystem exactly. in the UK, in the US, um, in Palestine. So we're not the sole organization to look out for or to support. There are various efforts. First off, um, you know, if you have capacity for, you know, as listener for financial contributions, that's always welcome. But importantly, supporting our work by attending our talks, participating in our workshops, things like that. But also, there's great organizations we have the absolute pleasure of, of knowing or, or working with. Um, so here in the UK, there's Palestine Solidarity Campaign, yeah. the largest solidarity organization in the UK and Europe, Visualizing Palestine, who I've mentioned a few times, Adala Justice Project, they're based in the, in the US, and um, Al Shabika, the Palestinian Policy Network, and Friends of Birzeit University, or Bobzu. Um, excellent organizations I would highly recommend to check out. But if I have just a minute, I'd like to actually point to also um, efforts on the ground in yes, Palestine. Um, so there's Talat, um, which is a feminist anti-colonial movement founded in 2019. Um, El Kaus, an LGBTQ Palestinian-led organization looking at the well-being um, and rights of Palestinian LGBTQ communities all across historic Palestine. El Haq, um, a firm which looks at defending human rights in Palestine since 1967. There is Adala, which is a defending the, the rights of Palestinians as well. Badil, the Center for Refugee Rights based in Bethlehem as well. They produce amazing um, information around um, where Palestinian refugees are now and kind of producing census reporting as well around them and booklets that are very helpful. Um, but I think also just to end that I would also say if, as a, if, if you're listening in and would like to become more involved, I think ultimately it's important to listen to what is being demanded. Um, so Palestinian civil society in 2005 demanded 
um, issued a call demanding for the end of the Israeli occupation, the right to return for refugees, those in exile and people who've been internally displaced, and full equal rights for Palestinian citizens of the Israeli state. Um, and, and in many ways that if you choose to, this is an option for you to go ahead and, and learn more about this call. And especially with a rooting in the global arms trade, this is actually the principles and demands of the, of the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment and sanctions. So it's a nonviolent call rooted in international law, demanding freedom, dignity and justice for Palestinians by divesting from companies that have investments in Israeli companies that profit off the occupation, boycotting institutions that have financial ties to the Israeli state and military, and placing sanctions on Israel until it abides by international law. That is an option as well. Um, people who would like to learn more about specifically how to contribute to ending UK complicity on the global war, on the global arms trade, there's also an excellent uh, organization called War on Want. Yeah. Um, amazing. And also P Palestine Solidarity Campaign or PSC. There are many efforts to get UK universities to follow their ethical procedure policies of where to invest their money for both the well-being of faculty and for the well-being of students. Um, and I think the most helpful thing that people can do when they're talking about Palestine is that they're centering Palestinian voices and understanding what Palestinians have been calling for for the last one, 100 years. Um, I think those, there's definitely you know, copious amount of organizations, actions that you can call on and go for. Um, so those are just a few. Find the one that best fits you essentially and where you are and with what you can do. Thank you so very, very, very much, Sorona. I want to thank you to you folks at McCann and thank you to all the folks that you've listed in that rich ecosystem of people who are who are working on this cause, basically. Um, I think that, you know, this particular episode would be really powerful for listeners to um, be able to digest something that can feel quite complicated. And you've, you've managed to give us many accessible routes into understanding it better. So thank you so, so much for today. So my friends, this brings us to the end of another powerful conversation. Tune in next time as we catch up with more inspirational comrades. And don't forget, you can listen to episodes of People Not War everywhere you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Acast. And of course, you can read the zine of the same name on the CAT website. Simply visit cat.org.uk. Stay in touch by following us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're enjoying our content, why not consider becoming a supporter? Again, more information about that on our website. But as always, until next time.